gets sick, the right kind of sickness, they all get it because we only have the three classrooms. So. Go buy more Lysol. <laughs> well, why don't we pray? We'll, we'll get started. They, they can enter. I want to share something with you real quick about services. Sorry, man. And I'll do it again uh, later when more people come in. Can y'all see that calendar? Yeah. Okay. Uh, today's 17th. We obviously have a wedding on the 20th. That's Bob and Lynette. Bob, it's at 5. Wedding's at 5 o'clock. The whole church is invited. I can assure you that will be a deeply spiritual event. Lots of fun. Will not be a uh, dry, read-from-a-book ceremony. This will be fun. to be a picture of Jesus. On the uh, 21st, of course, we have uh, a normal church service. And uh, this will be one to invite people to. It will be something that will be interesting to folks that aren't Christians, anybody that's ever lived in America, or maybe even if they're just visiting. doesn't matter. Uh, that will be a good service. The 24th, uh, Christmas Eve, we're going to tell everybody, stay with your families. Have fun. Uh, there will probably be a day when we'll have midnight services and those things, but it's not this year. So... Uh, don't come on the 24th or you'll be in the parking lot all alone. Um, 
The 28th will be our last service of the year in this building. Uh, that's a Sunday service. Uh, because on the 31st, we are going to meet at Matthew and Cassidy's for the bonfire. Yay. We'll show up from 5 to 7, somewhere in that area, and stay all night. Uh, having said that, yeah, yeah every, <laughs> every year, uh, a week into the new year, people send me offerings, which is not a bad thing. We love that you send offerings. But then ask for it to be rolled into the last year. I'm warning everybody now, the calendar year cuts off when the calendar year cuts off. So if, uh, if it's not to us by the, the 31st, we will not be rolling it in. We're, we're not going to go through that horrible manipulation of books. So if you have offerings that you would like to get into the year, uh, bring them on the 28th. Worst case scenario, stop by our house or put it in our hands on the 30th. If you wait till the 31st, it will not make it in the church books for the year. And uh, we're just trying to get very standard in the way that we do things. And those of you that have kept books before understand why. Uh, it just gets harder and harder to reconcile. <coughs> Does that make sense to everybody? Yeah. Okay. Because of the way that the calendar falls this year, in all likelihood, the first Sunday of the new year, your giving statements will be there for you at the door so that you can file as quickly as you would like to. I've been asked about giving statements lately. Yes, we keep good records. So uh, it, it'll be there, and hopefully it'll be an encouragement to you uh, to see what you contributed to this year. Uh, you ready to pray? Ready to worship? Yes. I feel like I'm forgetting something. We're supposed to pass around a sign-up list. For items for the uh, bonfire. If you, if you don't see it tonight, we'll definitely have it by Sunday. Yeah. Also, the RSV, whatever that is, some kind of disease for the ladies. Um, Caden has it, and Grayson's been coughing, and we think we have it too now, so just pray for that and go away. Let's do that. Let's join yeah. hands now. Uh, my, my little girl's homesick too. Uh, seems like all the rugrats. And uh, y'all remember Beth? Beth's mother is near passing uh, at the moment, so she's called and asked for prayer, texted and asked for prayer. Uh, my brother-in-law's sister, Nicole, has Crohn's, and she's a Christian, and last time she had Crohn's, she had a real bad episode after she was on a missionary trip in India. Mm. Well, now she's having to get part of her um, intestine removed this week, the week of Christmas, and she has two little boys, so... Uh, my sister specifically asked, obviously, for healing that this would resolve the crowns and that she wouldn't be stressed because she's going to be in hospital for five days at least. Pray for my sister, Jenny. Yeah. We'll, we'll do that. We'll do that now. Since there are always an overwhelming number of needs, and we never want to get deaf to them, but you also, you don't want to forget that the reason we're praying about them is because our God. He does things about this stuff. He's fixing the creation now. If he was from Louisiana, he would be fixing it. But because he's not, he is fixing it. You ready to pray? Yes. You ready to pray, Sydney? Mighty God. Lord, we bring you our petition, our request. We're your people. And so, Lord, with uplifted hands, we come as if we were pushing this off on you. Our shoulders are not big enough. Mighty God, yours are. We are crying out to the only one that can do anything about Nicole's circumstances, about Jenny's circumstances, Cadence and Gabe's, 
mighty God and Graysons and Abbeys and all those that are sick. Lord, we lift up Jenny before you for cancer. We lift them all up before you and we ask, Lord God, that your healing power would flow to them. In the name of Jesus, we are beckoning, mighty God, that your hand would strongly work among us, testifying, confirming the gospel that we preach. We love you. Lord, we believe in your kingdom and we long for it. We desire to see it manifest in a real and meaningful sense, not just within us, but all around us. Jesus, we love you and we worship you as king tonight. We pray for healing in our church and healing in the families that are around us. We pray against this RSV thing in our children's church. Mighty God, in the name of Jesus, we come against it. Lord, we thank you for the weddings that are happening. We thank you for our families that are visiting. We thank you, Lord, for a chance to see spiritual healing as well as physical healing. Lord, teach us to make the most of it. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Saints, when we sing these songs, let them be our prayer. Because these are songs about that. Let them be your prayer. Amen. All right, a little short quiz for you. Uh, somebody give me the definition of righteousness. Be in right standing with God. Give me uh, the definition of peace. That all is right with God and man. All is right between you, God, and man. And give me the an example of joy. Yeah, there's one. <laughs> Smile on your face. Do it, do it, yeah. Joy, a view of, of an outcome from God's perspective, not yours. Amen? Amen. Let's sing about it. Righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. <coughs>
Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
necessarily the same, and yes, I've watched it. I wasn't wondering, but thank you for letting me know ahead of time. The one toast sticking out sauce. Can't contain it. There is. last Wednesday and you remember the Wednesday before that okay if you weren't here for either of those two Wednesdays we'll get them up online soon but uh, this evening what's today's date is uh, December 17th 2008 tonight we will be speaking about the kingdom all three of these kind of form an informal series the reason we spoke about uh, the rapture first and the uh, historically speaking youthfulness of that doctrine was because it's what's most prominent. It's what we are, what we've grown up in as far as the milieu of our religious discussions. This has been the predominant feature. Then the next week we move towards the resurrection to talk about in the first century what the topic of discussion was. Uh, not rapture, but resurrection. Same hope of all the 12 tribes. In each case, we felt very rushed, didn't have enough time, but we have the rest of our lives to talk about these things. Tonight, I wanted to cover with you the kingdom. It's because these three topics together all form the way that we think about what is known as the world to come, or the parasousia, the age of perfection, the messianic age, all of those things. And something has happened. And I don't want to teach tonight on the way in which the error crept in, because I do that a lot. Tonight I want to show you where the truth came from. But I do want to mention to you that the first century of Messianic Christianity was comprised almost entirely of Jews who began their worship services as Jews, moved in their worship services as Jews, and finished their worship services as Jews. Throughout the book of Acts, this testimony is complete. In every city that Paul goes into, he is a Jew speaking in a Jewish synagogue received by Jews. It's only after he does this that he begins moving towards God-fearing Greeks and then pagans at large. The gospel is first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. This didn't change anywhere in biblical history. It's just that as the church accepted larger and larger numbers of Gentiles and persecution against Jewish people intensified, Jewish believers found themselves in a bit of a vice. The world did not like them because they were Jews and other Jews were becoming increasingly negative towards them because they considered them a minority sect within Judaism called followers of the West. This put them in a place where they were hated by both sides eventually. Because of that, a division started to grow in the church. 
the church that had been founded, nourished, taught, and protected by Jewish apostles suddenly was being run by Gentiles. And just like you and I have come into the Christian faith with preconceived ideas, those Gentiles did too. I can't teach on the entire historical way that this happened tonight, but you'll get it many other times. We want to get right into the Word. I just wanted to tell you that it is not until the 3rd and 4th century that the idea of going to heaven appears anywhere in literature, period. I want to give you my disclaimer because I, I will get this undoubtedly. I do almost every time I, I teach it. I nowhere in my teaching tonight am denying that if you should fall asleep in this life, that you do not wake up in the presence of God in heaven. And if your grandma loved Jesus, then and she's dead now, then she's alive in the presence of God in heaven now. However, I challenge you to find a handful of scriptures that speak about that. It's very, very difficult to do. What you do is you find scriptures that say things like, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. What is central to our preaching and teaching today is found nowhere in the Bible as a central figure. The central figure of the Bible starts in Exodus 19 as far as a goal and a hope. I taught you last week that the apostles proclaimed the resurrection. They proclaimed the resurrection for a specific reason. It was the triggering event for something. Turn with me to Exodus 19. Good, brother's there. And I'm going to do my best to get out some scripture for you that will help form this. Uh, we just took down our, our Christmas nativity. And uh, in a nativity, in Western culture, what we have happen is we have shepherds show up and then magi show up. And it's all at a nativity. A nativity usually that is made to look a little bit like a barn because that's where we keep animals. And the Bible mentions that Joseph and Mary lodged in a place where animals were kept. Our nativities don't look anything like the real setting would have been in Israel. But if all you've ever seen is that, when you read about it, that's what comes to mind. You may even skip over something that clearly identifies the Magi did not show up for two years after Jesus was born. It's unmistakable in Scripture. But we portray it wrong year in and year out and in all the yard art that you'll drive past on your way home. So that... A certain percentage of the population and a large one, when they read that story, it does not even dawn on them that there's a two-year gap in those paragraphs because they've only seen it portrayed one way. I want to suggest to you that because all we have ever heard portrayed, all that has ever been preached by people that we love, people that we respect, all we've ever grown up in is believe on Jesus so that you can go to heaven. Tonight we're going to look at something else. I'm not denying that you go to heaven, but I do want to look at something else that is a much more biblical hope. In Exodus 19, God has seen the misery of His people. He has looked upon them with favor, and He has brought them out of the situation they were in by judging the gods of Egypt and showing His hand powerfully. When he assembles his people, and it's the first time in human history that the divine speaks to mankind at large. Not an individual, not just one or two individuals, but is speaking to an entire nation of people in an audible way that they could all hear. It changed the course of human history. Our laws are based on this today. 
Everything around us has been affected by what happens in the 19th chapter of Exodus. And I want you to hear what God's promise to his people is. If you start in Exodus 19, we'll pick up in verse 5. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations... By the way, where are nations? They're all on the earth, are they not? I'm going to say that kind of thing to you repeatedly. It's going to sound almost as if I'm insulting your intelligence, but it's because somewhere in our thought and in our theology, scriptures that obviously have to do with kingdoms and nations on the earth take on a miraculous transformation and suddenly begin speaking about off-world concepts like the Greeks thought of Elysium. But nowhere is that in this context, and it will not be for the 39 books of the Old Testament. And when we get to the first book of the New Testament, it, we would have to depart from all of the previous 4,000 years of history to take on a new interpretation. But we're going to start here. Out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. God made a promise to one nation that for, for them, for God's sake, they would become a kingdom of priests. A kingdom is made up of a king and his subjects. And this nation would honor God as their king. They would be his subjects and they would constitute something called a kingdom. Again, saints, where was that kingdom? On the earth. He's speaking to a people who are firmly planted on dirt. And he is talking to them about, of all the nations on the earth, them being a special one on the earth, a kingdom. Turn with me to Numbers 24. We're going to move from left to right in your Bible for a little while. Not only did God himself say this, even pagan prophets knew it and spoke about it. Balaam has been hired. He's been hired to prophesy about Israel. And when he begins to prophesy, the kings who hired him don't like what he has to say because it's all good. In Numbers 24, starting in the first verse. Now when Balaam saw that it pleased the Lord to bless Israel, he did not resort to sorcery, as he had at other times, but turned his face towards the desert. When Balaam looked out and saw Israel encamped tribe by tribe, the Spirit of God came upon him, and he uttered this oracle. Whether or not Balaam is a good guy is beside the point. God is using him to speak a message and listen to the message. The oracle of Balaam, son of Beor. The oracle of one whose eyes sees clearly. The oracle of one who hears the words of God, who sees a vision from the Almighty, who falls prostrate and whose eyes are open. How beautiful are your tents, O Jacob, your dwelling places, O Israel. Like valleys they spread out, like gardens beside a river, like aloes planted by the Lord, like cedars beside the waters. Water will flow from their buckets. Their seed will have abundant water. Their kings will be greater than Agag. Their kingdom will be exalted. Their kingdom. Even the pagan prophets, when looking at Israel assembled as a nomadic people in desert tents, looked at them and what they saw was a kingdom that would be exalted. Israel was called to be God's kingdom on the earth. Other people recognized that they were a kingdom and they grew as a normal kingdom would. But this would not be their destiny. Their destiny was not to be any other kingdom on earth. It was to be a kingdom of priests, a royal priesthood, a chosen nation, a special people group. Because of that, 
when they would have a king, he had to be a different kind of king. The, their kingdom would have to be ruled in a different way than the other kingdoms of the world. Turn to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy, the 17th chapter. Tell me when you're there. Where are the rest of you? By the way, Exodus 19.6 was the first time in all of the Scripture a kingdom uh, for God or God's people is ever mentioned. The first time a kingdom is ever mentioned in a positive sense anywhere in all of the Bible, it is God speaking to a people group saying they will become His kingdom. Period. First time. So if you like the law first mentioned, that's how it's used. Are you ready for Deuteronomy 17? Lord, what's wrong with y'all? Y'all ready for Deuteronomy 17? Okay. In Deuteronomy 17, look at this. Verse 18. This is speaking to the particular nation, Israel, whom God has chosen to be His kingdom. And speaks about when they take for themselves a king. When He takes the throne of His kingdom, He is to write for Himself on a scroll a copy of this law, taken from that of the priests who are Levites. It is to be with Him, and He is to read it all the days of His life, so that He may learn to revere the Lord His God and follow carefully all the words of the law and decrees, and not consider himself better than his brothers, and turn from the law to the right or to the left. Then he and his descendants will reign a long time over his kingdom in Israel. When Israel chose a king because of their special status among the nations, their king could not rule as he saw fit. Their king could not rule by mere natural instinct or by the wisdom of his counsel. Their king was supposed to personally handwrite a copy of the law to read it every day and to render his decisions based on God's word because this was not supposed to be a normal kingdom. This was supposed to be a kingdom on earth that was God's kingdom. You will be for me a kingdom of priests, a treasured possession. And all these things are aimed at fulfilling that. As time goes forward... We find out that they have taken for themselves kings and the kings did not act in a way that was consistent with God. So God raises up kings and pulls down kings and tears parts of the kingdom from them because He's working in one group of people to have a kingdom on the earth. Listen to how First Chronicles puts this. You can find it in Second Samuel too, but I'd rather read it from Chronicles. Tell me when you're there. You'll be in Chronicles 17. Oh, Mandy. Mandy's there. Where are the rest of you? In Chronicles 17, it is promised to a king in Israel, a man sitting on an actual throne in Israel, a place that you can go and stand on the earth today. Not a representation of Israel in the heavens, not some mythical kingdom that exists some other place that we've renamed Israel, an actual monarchy on the earth during that time and listen to what is said to him. In the 10th verse. Got to find the 10th verse. Uh, start 9. And I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own. This is God speaking to David. And no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also subdue all your enemies. 
I declare to you that the Lord will build a house for you. When your days are over and you go to be with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. I will never take my love away from him as I took it away from your predecessor. I will set him over... What's that? My house. My house. Who, who is my here? It's God. I will set him over my house, God's house, and my kingdom forever. His throne will be established forever. When God was speaking about David's kingdom, He called it my kingdom. When God said that David would have a descendant on the throne forever, God called that throne His throne. He said, I will set him over my kingdom. Where was David's kingdom? It was on the earth. It's in definable geographical regions. It's still there today, and the people still have a claim to the land today called Eretz Ya Israel, the land of Israel. This is central to the Bible promise that God picked a people in a land to rule the earth for Him. When He put Adam on the earth, what did He tell Adam to do? Rule the earth. He did not tell Adam, just wait, hang out a little while, eventually I will snatch you off this thing and you'll go to Canaan in the sky. He told him to rule it. Mankind's job has never changed. It's just that God picked a special nation and said, I'm going to rule it through you. You will be my kingdom. You will be a kingdom of priests. This thought was in Israel's mind. It dominated Israel's thoughts to the point that they were looking for the son of David who would rule God's kingdom, a.k.a. Israel, on the earth. Turn with me to Psalm 103. Like how we're moving from left to right? My hope, and I don't know whether we'll have time, but my hope is to be able to give you an opportunity for all of the, yeah, yeah but, questions. Okay, Because you have to have them. I know that. My intent is not to belittle some other point of view. I want you to understand, I was completely born again, in love with Jesus, ready to fly away at any moment to a planet called heaven. Because I heard a popular TV evangelist who spoke about it like that, and he filled football stadiums, and I like him, and he's one of the most respected biblical teachers of several generations, friends to lots of presidents. That's what I heard, it's what I believed, until I started to read the Word closely. And then I found out that other people had already done this, and that a great departure from the truth happened as Romanism dominated the church. And the Reformation was great. It put the Word back in the people's hands but they were still tainted by what they had been taught for more than a thousand years and it took a long time to come out of it. And it's only now that the church is re-examining its Jewish roots and getting back to the hope of Israel. By the way, you can go to the Houston Museum right now and see first century exhibits that are questioning whether or not Christianity was separate from Judaism in the first century. Sixteen years ago when I was born again, I had never heard anybody consider that. Now even the secular museums are displaying archaeology on the same subject. 
Uh, go in Psalm 103? Yes. Look at the 19th verse. Sometime you should read all of Psalm 103. It will bless you beyond belief. The Lord has established His throne in heaven, and His kingdom rules over all. God's throne, uh, His seat of authority, is in a heavenly place. But His dominion stretches out over all. Praise the Lord, you His angels, you mighty ones who do His bidding, who obey His word. Praise the Lord, all His heavenly host, you servants who do His will. Praise the Lord, all His work, everywhere in His dominion. The Bible paints a picture of God on a throne. Now this is purely, absolutely symbolic. God is not in a body that can be seen. God is not in a container that can hold Him. God is spirit and cannot be seen, and the book of John says it, and throughout the Old Testament it says it. He chose to represent Himself by the angel of the Lord, or in the incarnation, Jesus. But when it pictures Him on a throne, this is because when we are looking uh, around us, kingdoms were supposed to show us how God ruled. And His throne was in a high place that could not be touched. But the point of Psalm 103 is that His dominion stretches everywhere. He can rule Louisiana or Texas from there. And that makes this also His kingdom. We're not going to flash forward to this yet, but does anybody remember that in Corinthians 15, the whole point of the resurrection was that Jesus must reign until He has put all enemies under His feet and God's dominion would stretch out everywhere, making God all in all. God has a kingdom that He is establishing on the earth, and He is doing it through a son of David. Everywhere His dominion is recognized, it's claimed as His kingdom. His throne is still there, but He will have an earthly throne that a son of David will sit in. You'll see this through the Scriptures. None of this has to do with leaving this old stinking world behind and going somewhere else that is perfect. A hundred percent of this has to do with a different kind of kingdom on the earth. Nowhere in any of these scriptures do we see an escapist mentality. When we get to Psalm 145, he speaks of the splendor of his kingdom. But if I read it, I won't have time. So go to uh, Isaiah 9. Mandy's faster than the rest of you. Okay. Now this is a scripture that is going to get quoted and quoted and quoted in the next two weeks. Probably it will be sung on the radio through the next few weeks. People will uh, rejoice over it every once in a while. You'll even see a sign in the yard and you wonder if anybody has read the entire chapter. Because it does not show up in our creeds. Listen to this. Isaiah 9.1 Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, He humbled the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. Where are Zebulun and Naphtali? Those are two northern tribes in Israel, dare I say it, on the earth. But in the future, He will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by way of the sea along the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. 
They rejoice before you as a people rejoice at harvest, as men rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of the oppressor. What kind of uh, deliverance are we speaking about? He said, they've seen a great light. Man, this is just like when you liberated us from Midian. It's just like when you liberated us from the yoke or the bar that was across our shoulders. They're speaking about things that happen to them in their everyday life, saying, man, what you're doing now is as good as when you whipped our enemies for us. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for fire. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. Now who is this? Y'all tell me. This is Jesus. We sing it about Jesus. We're excited about it being Jesus. It's Jesus. Who is this given to? Zebulun, Naphtali, the land of Galilee of the Gentiles who had experienced temporal deliverance and this was as good as that. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. Where's that government? It's on his shoulders right here on earth. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Well, the government that was oppressing him, where was it? It was on the earth. Where would you think his government would increase? Why would we assume that his government's increasing anywhere other than on the earth? He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom. Where was David's throne and where was David's kingdom? On the earth in Israel. Establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forevermore. What we hear is the promise that a child will be given, that governments will try to oppress him, but his government, his rule, his kingdom, his dominion, here on earth, on David's throne, will increase and never end. This means that if you are a part of his kingdom, you cannot be somewhere other than on the earth with him forever and ever and ever. Look at Isaiah 11. We have a new order in this kingdom. This kingdom on earth has got to be ruled in righteousness based on God's word. A king who hears God's word and does what God says. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and the spirit of understanding. The spirit of counsel and power. The spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears. Have you ever read John 5? John 5 says he doesn't speak any word unless he hears the Father say it. He doesn't do anything unless he hears the Father do it. You remember Jesus said, I don't judge by mere appearances? Yes. He only did that which the Father showed him to do because he is the king that Isaiah is speaking about. Listen. But with righteousness... He will judge the needy. How many of those are there in heaven? With justice, He will give decisions for the poor of heaven. No. With justice, He will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of His mouth. With the breath of His lips, He will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be His belt. Faithfulness, the sash around His waist. The wolf will live with the lamb. In heaven? Probably not, huh? 
The leopard will lie down with the goat. Where do you suppose a leopard and a goat will be lying down together? On the earth. The calf and the lion and the yearling together and the little child will lead them. The cow will feed on the bear and the young feed with the bear, not on. Their young will lie down together and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the hole of a cobra. How many holes of cobras do you think they have in heaven? At least in the way you think of heaven. And the young child will put his hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on my holy mountain. Now, how many times have you thought of God's holy mountain being off-world somewhere? The holy Zion in the sky. His holy mountain is on a place in Israel where he said, It's my mountain. And that's called Zion. And it's still his mountain today. It's just got a Muslim zit on the top of it. <laughs> they will neither harm nor destroy on my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters covers the sea. Speaking of the age of perfection, he says the earth will be covered with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Never is this a picture of the people of God being in a kingdom somewhere else. It's the people of God, a kingdom on the earth, and that kingdom reshapes and changes the earth. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for all the peoples. The nations will rally to him, and the place will, of rest will be glorious. The idea is that a specific group of people would be ruled by God as their king and a descendant of David <coughs> on a throne from Israel. Turn to Daniel 2. Tell me when you're in Daniel 2. Can you imagine that you're raised not hearing about going to heaven, but hearing about, look son, right there on that mountain over there, God will eventually reign all of the nations from right here. The people of the world are going to stream to this to hear what the nation of priests have to teach about God. Son, one day right here on this mountain we will see God roll up death like a shroud and throw it away. There'll be no more tears. There'll be no more mourning. Right here in this place now you will eventually see wolf lying down with lamb. This was a very temporal sign of deliverance here on earth, here, nowhere else. This is what Israeli children were raised to hope for. And they would say things like, I know when Messiah comes, this will happen. I know when Messiah comes, He will teach us. I know that at the resurrection, these things will happen. To them, the resurrection was the initiation of this right here. And it's what they're waiting for. They're waiting for that moment in which they would never be driven out of the land God gave them again. The moment at which they would have been blessed by God and blessed everyone else on the earth and brought the earth into a situation like the Garden of Eden. Which, by the way, is how the book of Revelation ends. This fairy tale that we teach our children and that has been taught to us, this did not become part of Christianity until Christianity looked more like the state religion of Rome than the teachings of a Jewish carpenter. Yes. Mm -hmm. But if it's all we've ever heard, it is very hard to uproot. And it hurts. And we think that we're insulting our families and blah, blah, blah. I just want to know the truth. And once you stray far enough from the hope of Israel, then people can tell you anything about flying off of planes naked with neatly folded piles of clothes and cars crashing. And, and uh, my God, if a psychologist wrote the book, it must be true, right? 
It's ridiculous. It's almost as if there is a complete and total absence of knowledge. Another way to say that is supreme ignorance of the Older Testament. But we don't know anybody that suffers from that, do we? Well, just give me the four Gospels. How could you begin to understand them? How could you begin to understand four books written by four Jewish men about Jewish men operating in a Jewish place if you did not read about their founding? When they said, save us, son of David, what do you think they were crying for? Hosanna, son of David! What are they crying for? The promises that related to the son of David, and what were they? A literal kingdom on the earth in Israel. Right there, that's what they're crying to Jesus. You want to know why they, why they rejected Him in Mass? They didn't see wolf lying down with lamb. They did not see this. The mystery was that it had to begin in us and include Gentiles. <laughs> That was a mystery. They never, because God said, you will be for me. He didn't mention that Matthew and I would squeeze in there too. That part was called a mystery. And it took Paul's teaching to get that out to the rest of the world. But in getting it to the rest of the world, unfortunately, we corrupted the message. It's no longer about Israel. Scriptures that actually refer to the land of Israel quoted in the New Testament, our Bible say earth. And it is most clearly not earth, but a land in Israel. Because we don't know any better. It's been handed to us. You all in Daniel 2? Yes. Man, man. I hate the pressure of the time on Wednesday nights. Because I, I want you to be able to absorb this. I want you to be able to revel in it. I want you to get it down in you so that you can repeat it to somebody at a gas station. Uh, Daniel 2, let's start in verse 36. You know that Nebuchadnezzar has had a dream. Uh, when Nebuchadnezzar has this dream, he wants to kill all the wise men for not being able to interpret it. And Daniel comes to interpret it. Uh, this was the dream, and now we will interpret it to the king. You, O king, are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. In your hands he has placed mankind and the beast of the field and the birds of the air. Wherever they live, he has made you ruler over them all. You are that head of gold. He had seen a statue. And each statue, in the statue, it had sections of metal. And each section of metal relates to something. And Daniel's going to tell him what they relate to. The king of Babylon was represented by a head of gold. After you, another kingdom will rise inferior to yours. Next, a third kingdom, one of bronze, will rule over the whole earth. Finally, there will be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, before we get into the fourth kingdom. Where was the kingdom of Babylon? That sounds stupid, doesn't it? It's on the earth. It's in Babylon. Where was the kingdom of Medo-Persia? Well, that's right. It was in Medo-Persia. It was on the earth. Where's the kingdom of Greece? On the earth. Where was the Roman kingdom? It was on the earth. So if we get to another kingdom mentioned after four kingdoms, and the previous four were all on the earth, why would we assume that the fifth was somewhere else? Well, because mommy and daddy said so, right? And their mommy and daddy said so. And before them, their mommy and daddy said so. Never mind that the first mommy and daddy who, who heard these things could not read the word because it was purposely written in a language they couldn't read. And some effeminate priest that was extorting them told them that this is what it said. It's good that you can read the book for yourself, isn't it? Amen. 
Finally, there will be a fourth kingdom strong as iron, for iron breaks and smashes everything, and as iron breaks things to pieces, so it will crush and break all the others. Just as you saw the feet and toes were partly of baked clay and partly of iron, so will uh, this kingdom will be divided. Yet it will have some of the strength of iron in it, even as you saw iron mixed with clay. As the toes were partly iron and partly clay, so this kingdom will be partly strong and partly brittle. And just as you saw the iron mixed with clay, so the people will be a mixture and will not remain united any more than iron mixes with clay. We've just described four kingdoms, all four kingdoms on the earth. Listen to these next words. In the time of those kings, in the time of the four earthly kingdoms, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. Where do you think he's going to set it up? Nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end. But itself will endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of a mountain, but not by human hands. A rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. And he goes on to say his interpretation is trustworthy. So not only would there be a kingdom that would rule the whole planet, Daniel gets the revelation that before that happens, before Israel realizes its goal, four Gentile kingdoms have to reign. Has to. So you know what Jews were sitting around doing? Counting kingdoms. And when Rome got there, they knew it was the last one, and they were waiting for a rock cut out of a mountain, but not by human hands, that would fill the whole earth with the kingdom of God that was Israel. They're synonymous. If it is an Israeli king on a throne in Israel, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, were Israel. Just distinct from the problems they saw in Israel. You understand that? As we move forward, you can get to Daniel 7. The dream repeats itself, but in a different way. I'm just going to read you the interpretation again. I, Daniel, verse 15 was troubled in spirit, and the visions that passed through my mind disturbed me. I approached one of those standing there and asked him the true meaning of all of this. So he told me and gave me this interpretation of these things. The four great beasts are four kingdoms that will rise from the earth, but the saints of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever. Yes, forever and ever. Who do you think Daniel thought the saints of the Most High were? That's right, Israel. During a time period they are in captivity, he is seeing visions of the kingdoms that will reign on the earth, but being encouraged that the people of Israel will yet receive the kingdom that was always promised them back in Exodus 19.6. You will be for me a kingdom of priests. Then I wanted to know the true meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from all the others, most terrifying with its iron teeth and bronze claws. The beast that crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. I also wanted to know about the ten horns on its head and about the other horn that came up before which three of them fell. The horn that looked more imposing than all of the others and that had eyes and a mouth that spoke boastfully. As I was watching, this horn was waging war against the saints and defeating them. Until the Ancient of Days came and pronounced judgment in the favor of the saints of the Most High God, and the time came when they possessed the kingdom. He's looking at a time in which the saints are being uh, annihilated, and the Ancient of Days comes to them 
pronounces judgment in favor of them and gives them a kingdom on the earth. Doesn't that sound a little bit like what I've told you in Matthew 24? A little bit like what I've told you about 2 Thessalonians 2? There is a time when a rebellion must come, but Jesus will return, destroy that person, and set up a kingdom on the earth. The mystery was always that you and I would get to be a part of it. Israel saw it as theirs and theirs alone because it was promised to them. It is still promised to them. We've just been grafted into that blessing. Not replaced it, not taken it from them, not an Israel on the earth and a church in the sky. That's nowhere in the Scripture. It is a complete and absolute fable. A theological house of cards waiting for someone to blow on it. But it's almost as if everybody's made the same agreement that we simply won't discuss these things. And the few that I hear that get this absolutely right, just don't do it loudly. There's not a thing that I've told you here that Pat Robertson, I've not heard him teach on TV. But it's not what he's known for. I mean, I, I love the man. I think it's awesome. But he's got a platform for all the nations to hear him. This is not what the man said. He goes on and says that the people are oppressed and handed over for a time. But in the end, the kingdom is handed over to them forever and ever and ever. So if you have been told that we go to heaven forever and ever and ever, it is wrong. Absolutely wrong. Not even our oldest hymns say this. When you hear Amazing Grace and you get all the way through it, we are standing upon the earth shining bright as the sun for thousands upon thousands of years. This fairy tale has taken on epic proportions in church land today. And we've kind of boiled it down to the simplest, stupidest possible thing that we could teach. Believe on Jesus, go to heaven. Now, never mind that every time an apostle begins preaching in the book of Acts, every time, he starts with the history of Israel and the kingship of David, followed by the resurrection of Jesus. Every time. But we don't even know how to start there. On the day of Pentecost, this is what Peter said. You follow it. The day Stephen is stoned, this is what Stephen said. You can follow it. On the, Paul's very first message that he ever teaches, this is the format that he follows because it was always about receiving a kingdom. You never once hear them ever at any time say, hey people, Jews, Gentiles, forget all of that stuff. Believe on Jesus, die and go to heaven. You never hear it. But we hear it every Sunday somewhere. They never say it. I'm not saying that it's not true. <laughs> Understand, I, I gave you that disclaimer. But it is not what they preached. Not at all. In fact, with this in mind, let's go to Matthew 4. Let's look at Jesus' very first words after being tempted. Jesus is tempted. He leaves the, the temptation. Your title says, Jesus began to preach. Here's the first words in red after the temptation. Repent... For the kingdom of heaven is near. Now, if you had been raised as a child in Israel, being told that over there on that mountain, God's going to roll away death. Over there on that mountain, there will be a throne that will never fade in which a son of David will sit and rule forever. If that's all you had ever been told, and a Jewish teacher, a rabbi, comes and says, you need to turn around because the kingdom of heaven is about to appear. What would you think? You would think that what Isaiah 11, Isaiah 9, Daniel, all those scriptures said was about to happen. This is what they were preaching. There is a new order of things coming. And it starts 
inside of you. It starts right now. Why did Jesus not stand up and say, Believe on me so that you can go to heaven? Never. Does not say it. We have gotten confused in our lack of understanding because it is a kingdom of the substance of heaven. It's a kingdom that is of the words from heaven. It is a kingdom from heaven that we think it is a kingdom in heaven. And it is not so. When Jesus prays, Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Look at the first words in Mark. We won't go through all the Gospels. I don't want to bore you. Look at the very first words in Mark that Jesus speaks in red. I don't even got to give you a verse. If you can not colorblind, you can see it. The time has come. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. What would be good news? All their oppressors are about to be rolled away. They're about to be the top of the food chain in the whole world with a king who doesn't rule by what he sees or what he hears. He rules by the word of God. By the way, how was Jesus presented in his ministry? Somebody who doesn't rule by what he sees and hears, but rules by the word of God. The promises were that this king would take care of the oppressed and the poor. Who did Jesus take care of? The oppressed and the poor. Why do you think the Jewish leadership didn't like it? It wasn't a kingdom that they wanted because it cared about the people they didn't care about and it left them out of power. Have you noticed that people run on social platforms for our political offices until they get in office? Oh, they all care very much about education, about the poor and about the poor common man until they no longer have to go to Walmart and buy a gallon of milk. Then all they want to do is raise your taxes another message. Go to Luke 22. I think everybody in here is of the educational level to understand the way in which I mean this. But when we take the word law that meant something good, that meant the perfection that God was aiming for, and we bastardize it to the point that all it means is something restrictive, a curse, something that is choking you. And then we take the word kingdom and we distort it to the same extent that it no longer has to do with something on earth that you inherit here and live in here, but some place that you go to with jukeboxes and cowboys and fishing holes. How long before we are telling a different story than the story that they told? Now, I'm not telling you that we're preaching false gospels here. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying at some point the story does get far enough from the truth that you have to say it's wrong. At some point. Maybe we're not there yet. But... It's scary to me. Uh, look, look at Luke uh, 22. Let's start in the 25th verse. The kings of the Gentiles lorded over them. Where do you think the kings of the Gentiles lived? Here. On the earth. And those exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. The king of the kingdom is there with them, showing them the king kingdom would operate differently. It's not going to operate like the worldly kingdoms where people oppress you and call themselves benefactors. It's going to operate on the basis of self-sacrifice. It's going to operate on the basis of personal service. You are those who have stood by me in my trials. And I confer on you a... 
kingdom. Now, do you think that at this point they're envisioning lollipops in the sky? What do you think they think we're talking about? Well, that'll get clear. Just as my father conferred one on me. Do you remember that God spoke to David and said, your son will rule over my kingdom? Here, Jesus says that the kingdom he's ruling over, the kingdom that is God's, was conferred upon him. Corinthians 15 teaches that he gives it back to the Father when it's all squared away. Here, Jesus is saying it was conferred upon me, and now watch what he's doing. So that you may eat and drink with me at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. The kingdom would be in Israel and they would rule and judge twelve tribes. A kingdom was given to Jesus and Jesus was entrusting them with portions of it. A kingdom on the earth. Look at Luke 23. got just a couple more for you and then we'll open up for questions and let whoever's got to get their kids get their kids. We don't have that many kids here tonight though. So you could be in for a long one then. Look at uh, Luke 23 starting in 50. Now there was a man named Joseph, a member of the council, a good and upright man who had not consented to their decision and action. He came from a Judean town of Arimathea and was waiting for the kingdom of God. He wasn't waiting to go to the kingdom of God because he already lived in the place it was supposed to be coming. He lived in Arimathea, a Judean town, and he was waiting for the kingdom of God. See, Israel thought of this as a very temporal thing. Now, in the 24th chapter, they're walking on a road to Emmaus and they're disappointed because they thought this was the guy who was going to restore Israel, meaning restore Israel's kingship. But the best question of all, is after the crucifixion, after the resurrection, when they are waiting to be baptized in God's Holy Spirit, the only thing that is on their mind, they actually interrupt Jesus' train of thought and ask Him a question. A question that was on every Israelite's mind. Look at Acts, the first chapter. Starting in the third verse. After his sufferings, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proof that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about going to heaven. What did he speak about? The kingdom of God. The kingdom that would be the fifth kingdom according to Daniel. The kingdom that was told to the people at the mountain when they were formed as a nation. The kingdom that Isaiah said would come and operate as a different kingdom. The kingdom that would begin with a child that was born unto us. The same kingdom that has been on earth since we first covered it in the book of Exodus and is still on earth when we're speaking about it in the book of Acts because the book of Acts was not even written yet. On one occasion while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. That's good all in and of itself. Can you imagine hearing that? How excited should you be to hear that? Come on, you charismatic Pentecostal people. How excited should you be to hear that? They don't say, thank you, Jesus. Wow, Jesus. We're excited, Jesus. Awesome, Lord. Do we get to speak in other languages? Do we get to prophesy miracle power? What did they say? 
Lord, are you at that time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? See, they had tasted in their history of what it was like when Israel was not oppressed and they had their own kingdom. But they never tasted of David's descendants sitting on the throne forever. They never saw lambs lay down with lions. They never saw a resurrected kingdom full of people that would never die. And they wanted to. So it overshadowed even their hope to have God's divine presence in them moving and operating in gifts. It was their central hope. And the reason the apostles began preaching with the resurrection of Jesus followed by our resurrection is it is the triggering event for the final realization of that kingdom. And they couldn't wait for it. How far is it? Do you know how many times you want to guess how many times the kingdom of God is spoken of? And if you go back and look in its context, very hard to put this off world in the New Testament alone. 157 times the kingdom is mentioned as being hoped for. And that's just as many as I could find. And you know I'm as dumb as a duck in high weeds, and I found that many. <laughs> so what are we to do then, saints? When you look at this and you see that what they preached and taught was a resurrection of the dead, first of the righteous, then of the unrighteous, and you see that they never anticipated leaving the earth, but they were waiting for a kingdom that came from God and was set up and enveloped the earth. And then you hear that we have a doctrine that has dominated Christianity that is less than 200 years old and focuses on living somewhere else while Jews suffer here. Don't you at some point have to at least reconsider it? Say, so, well, what difference does it make? We will prepare for post and pray for pre. You know what difference it makes? It makes a difference because this is the story of God's people. And when we start in Acts 2 and you hear Peter preach, he doesn't start with rapture. He doesn't tell the people, prepare for post and pray for pre. He starts with the founding of the nation of Israel and moves right through the Davidic kingship and talks about why the resurrection is important so that times of refreshing can come, the time when Israel's restored. When you see that Stephen's about to lose his life for rocks flying at his head, he starts in the same place and covers the same material. Just before Paul gets dragged outside a city and stoned to death, you know what he preached? Almost verbatim, Peter's same message. Because it was the hope of Israel. Now here we are, America. The shining light to the rest of the world. The beacon on a hill. Because we got more Bibles and more money and more influence. But you know what we don't have? The right message. We said, well, this gospel's got to go to every tribe, tongue, and... Well, what, what gospel is it that you're taking them? The Gentile Jesus who wants you to go to Elysium? You go back and look at what the Greeks thought happened. The Greeks believed that you went to another place off of the earth that was not tainted by material things because everything material was dirty. It's not what God said and it's not what God's people thought. But when the Greeks ran the church, they taught a different gospel. It was close enough to get us started, saints. It, but at some point, you're responsible for what the book actually says. Now, those of you who have been with me a long time, I have never made this an issue that would divide us, and I'm still not doing it. You know, it's very difficult to get out of our speech all of the ridiculous things that, that we say. I'm not expecting for you to suddenly... Uh, 
act like none of that ever happened. What I'm trying to say, though, is that we need to make sure that what we preach and teach and on what we've taken our stand is biblically accurate. And uh, this is not so that you can go stick a relative over Christmas with your sharp theological sword. But you know what? You might turn a Bible around and say, hey, brother, would you show me that? Because when a Jehovah's Witness does the same thing, he might convert them to a demonic false religion. First time I ever heard this done, it was a Jehovah's Witness that did it. He turned the Bible around, shoved it in a preacher's chest, and said, show me where you die and go to heaven. And the preacher scrambled around and came to the two or three scriptures that say things like to be absent from the body is to be present from the Lord, and it felt grossly unsatisfactory, and it looked to everybody around like the Jehovah's Witness was right. And he was. About a single item, all the rest was wrong. But because he was right about that item, he got people curious. All this happens when we don't know what the Word actually says. Y'all want to know what it says? <coughs> Me too. Uh, we're over time. I was still under an hour. We just need longer Wednesdays. I'm going to hang out here. As far as I know, it's just a few kids in the back. If you have questions or have yeah but scriptures, let's do them. Let's do them. We used to teach till midnight all of the time, but I'm not expecting you to stay if you need to go home and go to bed. I'm just... Uh, want to make myself available. When you put all three of these together, it ought to start to paint a picture of a different kind of salvation. When you put them all together, it ought to start to paint a picture that requires Israel to be saved for you to be saved. Yes. Do you understand that God can't give the kingdom to Israel without saving Israel? And that if Israel's not saved, the kingdom doesn't get set up on earth and you are not saved. That's why it's important that we get these pieces so you don't believe the lies. Oh. Any questions? Let's pray, then I'll take questions. How about that? Because if we pray, we can say goodbye to everybody who wants to go. Because at any minute, you could get snatched out of your car and fly off and get propped up by a jukebox and fish and sit with all your ex-wives or whatever it is that those people are doing. Yeah, I mean, country music determines our theology, right? Matthew, pray for us. Jesus, we thank you, Lord, for being who you are, displaying yes. your glory through us, inviting us into us and who you are. Mighty God, we bless your name. We pray that the Psalms 119 says, we hide your word in our heart so we won't sin against you, mainly so we won't miss the mark. We love you, Lord God. We love your word. We thank you that it is living and active. Yes. We bless your name. Amen. You know what the cool thing about God setting up his kingdom on earth is? It means he cares about what's going on in the earth. He considers everything that's happening. And he's bending it and working it and pushing it towards his will. There's hope. What's going on this week? So I can figure out if it's more efficient to do it tonight.